Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX. Welcome, everybody. I'll have to watch when I'm screaming here. Welcome, everybody, to the Near Future Podcast, uh, brought to you by Texas and SGGX. And I'm really excited today. Um, we've got Zeka Lin on the line, coming all the way in from California. And we've had I've had conversations with him before on his podcast, Positive. You can check that out. And it's been a really interesting conversation um, that we've been having over the last little while, Zeke. And um, I'll just hand over to you. If you want to do a quick introduction, um, let us know a bit about yourself and uh, what you've been up to lately. Thank you, David. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. And I have to just congratulate you for really doing this and kicking it off. And and you're, you're a natural. I, I'm so impressed by the way you just went right into that. Thank you for having me. Oh, not a problem at all. I mean, this is this is sort of the new normal, right? I mean, uh, everyone is working remote. Everybody's traveling, going back and forth. And it is an interesting transformation going from, you know, the, the multiple of Zoom meetings, quite honestly. Um, oh, my gosh, the, yes. Maybe, maybe the overextension of Zoom meetings into yes. something a little more relaxed where you can sort of sit back and listen uh, while you're driving, while you're working and doing other things. So it's really quite interesting. So how is life out in California? What have you been up to lately? <laughs> What have I been up to? Well, right now I'm looking out. It's um, what time is it? 7.20 p.m. right now. I'm looking out over a lavender pink sky over the Pacific, looking over Catalina here in Orange County and in uh, Huntington Beach, actually Surf City, USA. Um, so really a nice evening. We're going into spring. Feels great. And um, I, I just love just being here. Um, a little bit about my background um, for those um, who are new to the show. Um, I'm I'm uh, an angel investor. I, I consider myself an impact-focused angel investor, and I've been for the last couple few years focused on U.S. Um, startups that have both a social and sustainable tech um, focus in terms of an overlap with the SDGs, but also just um, better biz- better businesses that do good. I mean, I know I know. Last conversation we had, there was uh, a lot of conversation around sustainability. And, you know, how these concepts are coming out and why, honestly, why do you think this is happening? Do you, is there a lot of movement um, out in Silicon Valley around this concept of sustainability, not only from the founder side, but from the investor side, from the from the venture capital side? Really good question. I think most of it's being driven by a new wave of um, Gen Z consumers who are more um privy to information they 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 have more access to information the internet is has become a, a source for people to really uh, find things that are meaningful to them and um, we are seeing a i think a trend of um, younger people that want to see more positive impact in terms of how they engage with their with their um, products how they engage with technology they want to make a difference people want to be engaged with a purpose things like that so i think a lot of it's driven by this um, obviously you have as you well know, for the last 30, 40 years, the UN has been working tirelessly to really bring sustainability front and center to business in your work as well. And I think that, you know, we see a culmination of that um, everywhere from, you know, solar in the early 1980s to 
clean tech in the in the um, early 2000s and now toward climate tech and sustainability is just kind of the, the natural progression, I believe, that, that ties those things together, especially on the social impact side as well. Are you seeing the, the term sustainable development goals, the SDGs, are you seeing that term popping up into the narrative from, uh, from investors? Well, uh, yes, indeed. Um, I guess I am in a bit of a bubble. Uh, you and I, we, we share pa passion. A, co so, a common bubble. <laughs> it's hard to say in this day and age when everything um, and is personalized toward our interests. Um, it, it's sometimes difficult to know what is um, a signal that we're generating and et cetera, et cetera, uh, based on what algorithms give back to us. But I think overall, uh, generally speaking, across the U.S., especially um, with the new administration here coming out of um, the last administration, there's a lot of emphasis both on the clim climate aspect, but also on things like ESG and things like um, ecosystems and biodiversity and things like that. Those are those are coming to the forefront again, in my opinion. You know, it's funny. This um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but UNICEF, um, the UN agency that is uh, focusing a lot on children actually has an office in Silicon Valley and they set up an office there to look for a lot of venture capital funding, but also some of the ideas and perhaps maybe to influence some of the startups to, to look at areas that do concern children like uh, nutrition, education, these sort of areas. So it's, it's really, it's, it's not only that sort of the investor side is starting to look at sustainability, but also those in the development sector are really starting to look at new types of business models and new types of funding models, as opposed to just, you know, taking donations or grants or working with multilateral organizations, the banks and the mm -hmm. governments to fund a lot of their projects. They really are starting to see this relationship between public finance and private finance in a, in a sort of a blended configuration. And it's, mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting on, on, on where that's going to go over the next five, 10 years. Great point there, for, for sure. I wasn't aware of that program, and I'll definitely look into that. It, it's, um, it's always complicated to break into kind of what I call the VC impact side, this idea of um, uh, why I, I, look at the, I look at VC impact like this, um, that the positive impact is the future of venture capital. That's my, that's my vision for venture capital. And one of the biggest constraints uh, here in the U.S., at least with venture capital, is that um, there's always that aspect of um, of those high expected returns in terms of opportunity costs from from the next best investment or asset class. So one of the other considerations too, from what we're finding, is that if if something uh, is immediately out of the gates distributed outside of the U.S. market, sometimes that can create in my opinion, that can create some some um, different interests that don't necessarily align with the traditional VC set, um, and and that is changing. We're seeing some funds that that have more of an emphasis on international um, investing in general, but for the most part, usually people are looking for startups. Let's say that start in the U.S. and they can scale out, and then eventually they'll they'll move to other countries. And obviously, that just is a function of the market size. So that's the optimal. But in cases like, for example, um, well-being of children from a de social development standpoint, sometimes those opportunities do fall outside of the uh, the VC impact side and go more toward the philanthropic capital side. 
something that's more aligned with maybe patient capital or maybe angel investors who don't have that same demand that a venture capitalist would have aligned with, say, let's say the five, seven year exit or something like that. But how do you how do you sort of counter, you know, you're an angel investor and you let's say you see a startup, they're doing some very interesting, they got a nice business model, a strong team, and mm-hmm. they are also pushing towards positive impact. And so a double-edged question. One question is, how do you measure that impact? I mean, how, how do you go about, do you have a framework or are you working with the indicator sets? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I frankly don't have a great system in place for myself, primarily because I'm a, I'm a small angel investor. I'm you know, a accredited investor, but I'm not, I'm not um, you know, someone that has a team of uh, different analysts behind me. In addition to that, I've also fixed myself to invest through syndicates for the last two two years or so, and have been doing other um, uh, well scouting work outside of that. I can't speak much to that, but that basically just means that I'm uh, seeing a lot of different deals. Um, and as I move in the direction of an emerging fund manager, a similar questions I ask myself. And one thing I can say to this, and this is maybe a little bit contentious, but I think it's it's frankly quite true, is that um, early stage investors, we'll say pre-seed investors or seed investors, are to some degree going on the gamble of of, of the founders themselves. And in that and in that sense, there's also the aspect of not having a very clear um, definition of what an outcome will look like. And so it's an exercise to some degree in taking what, what, I, what I call impact risk or um, to the degree where there's kind of this impact slippage, so to speak. And, you know, that's where really the, the relationships come into play. That's where um, aligning with the, the startups is important, in my opinion, and or focusing on particular verticals. So, for example, if it's, if it's climate tech, and you know we're taking the do no harm principle, and they're working truly to help mitigate some impact, uh, climate risks. Then that's an obvious. But where it's a lot less ob- obvious, in my opinion, is where there are sort of overlap overlapping adjacencies. And we'll take, for example, something that's borderline what's called vice. So you know tobacco or alcohol or something like that. Um, if there are those opportunity sets that are adjacent, while these companies scale, we obviously want to be cognizant that. That while uh, you know solving uh, one problem, there aren't other problems that are being created, and so I get. I guess I could break out into some of the details about what I've been discovering. There um, are, but more or less, uh, one of the key differentiators between early stage VC and um, uh, say the more tra- uh, more traditional impact first types of invest investment uh, opportunities, we'll say like philanthropic venture through family offices or through foundations or uh, grants, things like that. The conditions, the condition aspect is usually not as strong on the VC side. It's more based based on the uh, sort of betting on the founder, so to speak, if that makes sense. Well, it does in a sense. I mean, from our side, we, we're, we're more in growth investing here. So we run mm-hmm. a sort of a, a VC impact, same similar concept and certainly the same principles that you're looking at there. The thing is here, when we're looking at a startup that is on the ground, potentially cash positive uh, market fit, and we're looking to expand the business, but at the same time, we're looking to expand impact because you can't have one without the other. Um, 
we have a lot of fingers, let's say, in a lot of technology. So we have a lot of strong influence on founders to say, listen, if you tried this, could be more cost efficiencies as well as, you know, greening your supply chain or try this. Mm -hmm. do, you think exactly. at the, do you think at the seed stage that um, is there an opportunity for an investor to actually have an influence on the founder? Or is it just, oh, yes. let's, get, let's get the business up and running first and let's focus on good, the impact later. Good, really great question. I like you raised this because this is these are the types of questions I wrestle with. And, and you know, if I had to be 100% honest, I, I don't think that there's any one size fits all silver bullet to any situation. But I definitely do believe strongly that the relationships matter and also the alignment with other investor sets matter. And if that means bringing in the right advisors or potential partners or potential employees, et cetera, as, as you introduce investors to new opportunities to scale their business, those things all make incremental difference. And in my mind, you know, you said it yourself, I think, when I interviewed you, it was a year ago. I, I do want to encourage your listeners to also listen to that episode <laughs> because I, I was truly transformed by much of what you had to say. Um, mentioning the personal aspect of impact was very important to me. And I think that, you know, as long as there's um, a, a mutual respect between investor and, um, uh, and founder, similar to the, um, Jackie Rasamabla was uh, on our um, podcast. She was working in sort of a uh, kind of a humane tech, safety tech opportunity space and talked about that, the... By, by the way, that was a great interview. I listened to that. that oh, that's, really, thank, really you, interesting. thank you. She's amazing. She's 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 working in uh, climate tech now. She was with uh, TechStars as well for some time, and her co-founder co was also on another episode with her co-founder. Um, she she was talking about the mutual respect aspect, and I think that that's critical in terms of building a relationship. If I had to kind of, I'm not going to paraphrase how she put it because it was incredible, um, but I think it goes back to what you were saying about personal. Uh, it being a personal to have. Um, an impact driver is personal, if I understood correctly. Um, to me, to me, I think it's a matter of of meeting founders where they're at, and then finding a dual alignment, and then really just supporting them to to help them fulfill that mission and that vision. And 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 here's the hard. This is the one thing I've realized that a lot of investors don't seem to want to grapple with, is that the founders know their game better than anyone else. If you if you took the example of your average farmer. And you said, look, we want to give you better technology. We want to help you, you know, improve your yield, et cetera, et cetera. If we try to take over their farming operation and tell them how to farm better, we're probably going to fail. And usually the best way is to, to give people um, access to things that will help them utilize it best. And especially if they're monetarily incentivized. And the same thing could be said about early stage investing, in my opinion. So um, making sure that the founder has an alignment with the opportunity is critical, in my opinion. For example, ownership, or for example, feeling as though they're in control of the business. That's often something that I think is overlooked when we start talking about, you know, fancy consultants that you know can give them, you know, advanced theories of change and helping them try to, you know, optimize their operations and all these other things. And yes, those things are valuable when they're perhaps at scale, et cetera, and, and when that's really the direction the business needs to go. But in the earliest stage, in fact, I'd have to say that the strongest proposition, especially in VC impact, to me at least, is allowing the investor to be just a bridge in support for the founder to truly you know, fulfill what it is that they know is meaningful to themselves.
But and I and I think that is interesting. I think there is a bit of a shift, and I I, I don't want to generalize. I don't want to say that the sort of an an, an impact enterprise or an impact startup, the founder is any different than a normal startup. They have the motivation. They have the inspiration. Um, they I have would the love to talk more about that. They have the leadership and team qualities. But I also mm-hmm. ask a question, and we can talk about that. I want to ask a question about now that you're out there, you got the podcast, and you're out, you got other activities than that. Do you find that some of the founders are actually searching you out as opposed oh, to yes, you trying definitely. to find them? Is really is that happening? Yeah, I mean that's intentional. So the podcast, I started the podcast about a year. I took a couple months after season one and and um, had pre-recorded some shows. Just released our first one with Peter McGraw. He's uh, he wrote the humor code and he's he created the theory of comedy, the synthesized theory of comedy, um, which is the benign violation. I would encourage anyone to listen to that. He's just super fun. He's a professor at UC Colorado Boulder. It was kickoff April first for his second relaunch of his shtick to business book. It was really fun. Anyway, um, so yeah, it is intentional. And sometimes I even make parody of all of it, just like I did there. But I think the main thing is just to align oneself with um, with with building an ecosystem. And that's that's the thing about why it's so important to have a community of people that that understand what what you're doing as a founder or as a podcaster or as an investor and et cetera, just a community builder. It's, it's ultra critical in my view to connect with people, make them feel welcome, give them resources that they're, that they're seeking and, and really stay true to um, supporting and paying things forward. That for me has been like the real unlock, frankly. And you support them on the business side as well, right? It's not just simply yeah, coming in from an always. impact side. And you know what the funny thing is? Here's the funny part. Here's the non-obvious part. In the process of meeting, say, 2,000 founders of the last year, talking in private with all these founders, trying to understand what their the core business, their impact focus is, um, there are cases where it's not aligned with the VC, and that's fine. And and I've befriended these people and actually stay connected with people. And sometimes we give you, you know, it's it just becomes like almost like a friendship. And also, it's a collaborative environment um, where you know someone's like back to the impact aspect and the personal aspect. You know that somebody is in, let's say, um, a particular sports um, uh, application. That's their focus, but it doesn't necessarily align with my thesis. That that doesn't mean that I can't connect with that person and and support them in their journey and maybe incrementally help them kind of steer themselves toward more positive impacts. I mean. It becomes one of those things where the more I get into the space, and I don't know if this is useful to say, but I really want to say it, the more you realize that you can um, give something forward to the community, it becomes like almost almost an infinite uh, opportunity set. Um, if you just go in with the right attitude, people really like that too. It's it's really wonderful to feel that. Uh, it, selfishly, it's it's nice to feel that as well. Have, have, you, have you ever been in the situation and I think this is happening more and more, but have you ever been in the situation where you're speaking with startups or a group of founders or what? And and honestly, this is actually, I'm speaking to the founders right now, if they're listening, where they actually have a business as a very inspirational, interesting idea, nice business model. They've got good understanding of their market and everything else. And they're producing impact, but they don't even know they're producing impact <laughs> because they're focused on the business model so much. Um, have you ever been in a situation like that I, where you I'm say, wait a minute, and it's, 
And it's almost like the Pareti rule, the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the business is exactly that. But if you did a little bit slightly mm -hmm. different, you could be creating mm -hmm. a whole bunch of impact um, that yeah. may actually open up brand new markets for you. You're 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 much more experienced in this. That's where I'm. I've learned from you in the process of of our chats. I think that you know there there really is no limit. It, it seems as though it, what I have been exploring is is the non obvious aspects of impact that aligns back to the personal aspect that you're discussing, but even more so to what you spoke about in the in the podcast when I interviewed you was. These um, these three different aspects. Um, I, I actually call it in, right. I've actually adapted it and called it impact spheres, um, where you have. I, I could read it. I have it on Twitter or something. But you have the individual, you have the group, you have the community, you have the um, the uh, society, and then you have the ecosystem. And and it's a little bit of borrowing on what you said, but it's also, but it's also um, it's it's back to like my. I, so I started as an environmental economist way back in the day and um in environmental science i do recall uh studying the idea of anthropo anthropos uh, anthropocentricism versus biocentricism versus ecocentricism and there are these aspects of projecting um the the human identity that's usually narrowed to anthropocentricism where where um uh, a lot most people will will look to protect species for example that look like humans for example people are willing to pay higher amounts to my understanding for um you, you know protecting uh pup seals versus protecting let's say i don't know <laughs> uh, uh cockroaches you know an endangered cockroach or something like that it, it's usually something that uh, is inherent in the way that we uh, a lot of people view the world but when you start to branch out into the study of ecology and the study, you know, obviously geology and things like that and different time spans and the, the intricacies of sustainability, it puts your mindset into a framework of other, but it also puts your framework into the, the standpoint of ecosystem services and biological systems and things like this. And to have that in, inherent in, say, government decision making is a very intelligent way to do, um, to do policy making. But it's also an intelligent way to do business. And so to tie it back into those opportunity sets like you're talking about, sometimes if you if you remove remove your own judgment about the opportunity outside of, let's say, the normal thing that we'd, you know, what is the actual offering here? The offering is, um, let's say, um, a therapy app, you know, um, that offering in and of itself is intended to do such a thing. Or let's even make something a little bit more contentious, let's say a social social media app. And so let's say that, for example, that social media app, it's just there to share shiny photos and to trigger dopamine responses through, you know, active participation and liking things and getting people fixed on that gambling mindset. But let's say you gamified that and you turn that into something like a social rewards program where people could uh, take, for example, the Series B company, Omaze, and now this it does go into borderline vice, so I do want to be careful, but um, Omaze is an example of a startup that says, okay, you want to take exotic um, uh, ecosystem-friendly vacations, or you want to have like a, um, sort of an, a sustainable, uh, eco-friendly camper van, well, everybody pool your resources, and then a percentage goes to us, a percentage, you know, you get a, you get a, probable win, which is the van, but then an, an additional social reward is something that goes toward a nonprofit. 
And so people buy in at a higher rate, uh, knowing the rewards, and they therefore everyone wins kind of thing. And so those everyone wins situations, I could think of one example. I interviewed Nick Cooney, who was um, one of the founding um, members of uh, Future Food, the Future Food Institute. I believe I have that correct. He's now a venture capitalist. And he was talking about um, alternative proteins and clean meats and some of the uh, non-obvious aspects of impact that most people wouldn't necessarily consider as, as intentional causal impact. And one of those was just the fact that, okay, you have all the metrics, you have like uh, water impacts are less, and climate impacts are less, uh, land use impacts are less, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all obvious, but then you have Things that are less obvious, for example, um, like say cons what he was saying is that consumers who buy uh, clean meats across the world right now, about 85% of them are are buying them because they because they're actually health conscious. It's not for you know animals actually. And another thing too, he said that a lot of fast food restaurants are taking this opportunity set and just seeing it as a way to um, modify their hamburgers, for example. And just offer people um, something that is a discount with the same flavor, but it's a win-win because it's healthier for people, it's healthier for the planet, and no one even knows about it. So there are those one of those cases that's not obvious. No, I mean this is that's a fantastic whole line there. There's a lot to unpack, but I think what's interesting is that impact has a perspective. That there may be an impact from the perspective of the founder or the operation or the startup in doing that, mm -hmm. but there's also a sort of a secondary impact from the perspective of the consumer. And then that ripple effect that sort of comes into play, where often, you know, we, we, we look at direct impact as being created by an investment, but it has a ripple effect. And there are some other impacts yes. that are happening that are that are not being measured, but can be even more important. I mean, job, right. you look at job creation in the developing worlds, for example, so you're creating some new jobs. Um, for a marginalized community, it could be women, it could be disabled, and all of a sudden they have an income, and that's great. There's a super impact, but maybe they're actually now buying higher quality food or better nutritious food for their kids or paying for that's education right. or health for their kids, and that may be even a more important impact Absolutely. when you start to look at that. And it's interesting that you brought up policy as well because we're seeing a lot of movement and i'd like to see if this is happening in the states but uh, certainly in luxembourg in hong mm -hmm. kong singapore the financial centers over here they are starting to look at these alternative fund management policies where they're mm -hmm. giving mm -hmm. certain incentives for impact funds to generalize mm -hmm. and impact in setting up as far as incentives in setting up maybe covering some of the legal costs of setting up the structuring mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. types of things because they they see a lot of interest in that and Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. impact funds, it's it's not easy to find a place to domicile. Certainly, you know, there's there's a lot of conflict with domiciling in the Caymans, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yes, even even though the Caymans on fund structure is relatively clean, on you know, on shell companies it's not necessarily clean. <laughs> but, on right. fund, but on fund structures, the Caymans is, is is relatively with all their bilateral agreements is relatively clean. And I think mm -hmm. there's some interesting stuff to look at that. And I mean. And I think that's where the perspective comes in, because even as you were saying around, certainly around um, alternative proteins, mm -hmm. the point of not doing something is also an impact. It's not a matter of doing yeah. something to create an impact. Sometimes stopping doing something um, can create a, a huge impact. And that, 
that's yeah, sort of included right. in that equation. And, and, a, and a country that is sophisticated in its policy making, uh, for example, I, I lived in Denmark for a couple few years in my early 20s, and it was an eye opener to me to see what an what an internalized economic system is in practice, to see how they looked at government investments from the standpoint of, um, I guess you could say like um, sus sustainable discounting uh, multipliers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. This idea that the, the, you're, you know, the government is actually investing into the opportunity set in the same way that you could say a sophisticated business would under uh, a competitive landscape where, where you're taking into account something like ESG as a differentiator for the public markets. And that's something I think is still quite a new concept in the United States. A lot of people, when they think about ESG, they say, oh, well, you know, you're going to have to regulate to make sure that there's no greenwashing and things like that. But I actually don't necessarily think that that's the right solution. I think that that can actually create counter, uh, counterintuitive outcomes. Um, one thing to consider, I'd say, is that the level of sophistication in the public markets in the U.S. and other countries now has become, um, I think, very, very, very sophisticated in, in terms of the, the, the measurement uh, characteristics. Um, but what, what you do see is a problem, and I'll say this bluntly, um, I actually did go through and get certified in the Global Reporting Initiatives, GRI, under the U.N. Um, auspices. Uh, this is some 10 years ago. And one, one of the things that I learned through that process is that there are simply so many alternatives and um, they're all voluntary or primarily voluntary in most regards, but, but also they're, they're also subjective to a certain degree. So the, there's kind of an economic cost to over-measuring, obviously. And if you, if you make regulations so heavy and so, so difficult, um, there are multiple risks that could go into doing that. One is just kind of deluding ourselves to think that there won't always be a subjective aspect or a personal aspect of impact. That's a, that's a, that's a threat in my opinion. Um, but also I think that it's, it's, um, it does evolve. So being, I think, too fixed on things like greenwashing or yeah, I've even heard people like fly off the handle and say ESG washing or uh, SDG washing or sustainable washing, or I, I heard like uh, so many variations of this over the last couple months as, as Europe uh, pushes for regulations in, in that regard. It does get into a little bit of the territory of, you know, is this a meat or is this a cheese or is this, you know, and, and getting so fixed on one legal word in some regard does in some ways not allow the market to do what it's best at. And that is to encourage differentiation and competition and a race to the top. Um, I know the intention is always said as, as such, but I, I do worry that, there, that being too heavy handed could turn more toward draconian outcomes that are unexpected. And that's my fear. Well, I think, I think, the, I think the fear is valid. I think on, on a couple of sides, certainly when you look at um, next generation technologies, um, even a simple example about uh, AI ethics, the, mm -hmm. the conversation, the narrative, the story is all around developing defensive policy, you know, what you can't do. And I think this is part of the problem when it comes in. It's, there's a little bit of fear in the marketplace, certainly fear from um, potential competition on that mm -hmm. side. But this is where the difference between a defensive policy, you know, basically stating things that you cannot do versus a progressive policy, things that you should be encouraging. 
I think that I is a big difference. And I think, for example, when we were talking about the, the impact investment policies in Singapore, Hong Kong, Luxembourg that are coming out, it really is mm -hmm. around the incentive, not what not to do, but what should investors be looking at? Where is the potential to invest? And they're, and they're actually simplifying the process of setting up fund mm -hmm. structures um, instead of trying to make them more complicated. So this concept of over-regulation, I think is definitely a threat. I think the, the, the point is who's pushing that though. And I, I would almost say that's the private sector more or less pushing that. Because I've always seen governments as impact investors. I mean, they, they mm, collect yeah, exactly. money through taxes, through natural reserves, right. oil, really good uh, minerals on one side, and then they spend it through their budgets on the other side. And, they and they're accountable. Yeah, and they should be spending it on social nets, right? Health, education, security, these sort of areas, innovation, um, economic development or rural economic development, inclusiveness. This is where mm -hmm. they should. So they've always, in my eyes, been impact investors. The problem I, I love think that. I think the problem there is because the ministries are in so many silos, you know, the Ministry of Health never speaks with the Ministry of Economic Development because they're on, they're on different sides of that spectrum where I think closure or some sort of common language and maybe impact investment policy will do that. Um, maybe new technologies will do that as well, sort of break these silos between ministries where, they've, where they realize that um, a health budget is actually investments in the future. An education budget is actually an investment in the future. And I think that's the different perspective they got to take. Interesting. Yeah, really good, really good perspectives, as always, David. I, I truly appreciate your perspectives. You have so much more experience. I have to say, I learned so much from you. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just sort of getting started. <laughs> well, um, maybe a little less on the policy side. I'm reading a book right now. Um, it's called Lean Impact by Anne May Chang. And she, she writes about using the lean methodology and impact measurement, which I found to be quite interesting. And and there were some. There was a chapter in the book later in the book about how grant funding and being sort of grant dependent becomes a problem for for some startups that want to lean into scale and and you know go toward bigger ex exits. Um, where sometimes having uh, I think they they had like a grant. She had this example of graduated grant structures that had payments based on financial outcomes or something like that. So the more the more you would progress toward the next uh, you know funding rounds, you would get sort of access to the grants, but they were very low friction in terms of reporting requirements. And sometimes she was talking about how sometimes these, some of these grants can be just overburdensome from the standpoint of, um, you know, progress or, you know, building an opportunity and things like that. And that's also the thing I worry about sometimes in terms of having too heavy of a hand in the earliest stage in startups in the U.S. Um, you know, I just it, it seems very counterproductive given an environment where we're we're trying to create innovation. I mean, I, I I like that idea, lean impact measurement. I think sometimes when you look at the the GIN, GII, and the Global Impact Investment Network (IMP) and some of the other frameworks that people are using, it, it tends to be rather complicated. And mm -hmm. a lean impact may help on the costing structure of actually doing the reporting, but also it just may be you may be able to get that information quicker so founders yeah. and startups can be actually more agile sort of react to, to to trying to maximize that impact i think i'll probably end up getting a copy of this book for the founders i invest in going forward it seems it seems like it's not a horrible read yeah you also have to, just you, another oh. go ahead 
Sorry about that. Oh, uh, yeah, it's Anne May Chang, and I'll definitely send you a link to that. Um, also, I'm really enjoying Jed Emerson's book, Purpose of Capital. He's just such an incredible <laughs> thinker. You know, you know Jed, so I wanted to give a shout out. I'm enjoying his book as well. Jed is a fascinating guy. He really, when when I was with the United Nations and we were setting up the Impact um, Fund, um, he was one of the first. Him and Charlie Kleisner uh, were from the Tonic Network. They're one of the first that I actually reached out to, just to sort of wrap my head around how to do this, especially when you're dealing with such a large bureaucracy, a large organization that wasn't quite at that time that favorable towards impact investment or working with the private sector so tightly. Um, no, Jed, is a, he's a brainstorm. I really like it. And the book is really, really interesting. The fact that he puts it out in a digital uh, format free is really interesting. Indeed. Um, there's another gentleman whom I've had the pleasure to get to know. His name's Kwasi Asare, and he's um, he's in the startup arena in the U.S. He, he also has a, um, a club on Clubhouse dedicated to UN 75 the 75th anniversary and um, some of some of the episodes or some of the shows he has there is really just fascinating in terms of humanitarian aspects. I wanted to give a shout out to him. I think it'd be fascinating if you were on your show as well, just as an idea. Um, I like him a lot. And also we have um, we have two other clubs. I just started two other clubs. One is social tech. The other one's sustainable tech. And it's they're a little bit more closed and a little bit more kind of um, focused clubs. And I tried to put in all these different verticals that I think fall under both of those buckets. And it ties back into this um, VC impact landscape that I spent like 50 hours generating where if you look at the SDGs in the US, there are something like out of 15,000, um, I found about 200 companies that had a very strong um, gearing toward, toward one of the SDG um, goals and found that there were roughly 200 that had passed uh, Series A, um, M&A or IPO. Wow. And um, yeah, and then I kind of parsed it out into sustainable tech and social tech. And so every week we have these shows on Clubhouse. We have like 4,000 members right now. Every every week we have these shows where I, I find two founders in the U.S. because that's kind of where my focus is in the, the moment. Um, we two of them in the same vertical that have an impact focus. And we just try to unpack like what their industry looks like and what they could do to, you know, go more lean or to, to have more of a positive impact, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, just... Um, on Friday, we had one on uh, sustainable fashion and, um, you know, talking about the intricacies of this, the fashion supply chain and some of the nuances surrounding measurement and the disparities of systems and some of the incentive structures, et cetera. It was just super fascinating. And, you know, I, I have to say humbly, I, I, do, I know very little. The more I learn, it's one of those things, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, so I'm trying to go in with as much of an open mind and hopefully stay out of trouble in the process. <laughs> Try, well, trying you, to learn as much as I can. Yeah, but you're doing you're doing some great stuff. Sustainable fashion, I mean, that is a on one side it's a huge issue because of the whole supply chain issue, um, and how much I mean the opportunity to green and clean uh, the supply chain on that, but also from the consumer side as well. So this concept of fast fast fashion, the quick yes. turnover of fashion. I mean, there's some really interesting. That's a, I mean, that's a heavy duty area to really sort of concentrate on. Um, mm. I got, I got one more question here because we're, we're sure. getting close to our time. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful. And, and this is a bit of an, an inspiration. Are you finding that there are NGOs in your area that are looking for a new business model? So they're looking to shift from a pure grant model to sort of mm -hmm. some sort of hybrid model that may be an opportunity yes. for yeah. seed investment. Awesome. 
I'll speak to that. Uh, I can't get the specifics right because I, I don't think I can recall it correctly. But we had a show. It was a social impact fundraiser for fun. There were two. There were two. Um, tech, uh, sorry, but I can't recall the name. Right. I'll get you the name for the show notes if important. Anyway, the the takeaway is that they are doing, I believe, under the Reg A plus in the United States. They're doing a revenue share opportunity where where the the nonprofit can generate revenue and they can raise funds through the Reg A plus vehicle, to my understanding, from what I can recall, um, based on sort of a bond, uh, like a, a retail investor grade bond. So that was quite interesting, I felt. It's, it's interesting in the sense we find this out here in Asia. So for example, in China, in China, you're either for profit or nonprofit. There is nothing. See, yes. They don't have the. That's the very legal- common here, too. Yeah, they don't have a oh, legal no, structure legal. for a social enterprise, for example, where in, in Thailand, they just passed the Social Enterprise Promotion Act, Korea, okay. Singapore. They've passed a lot of these acts in a sort of a hybrid legal structure. But in China, they don't. So what we do, what we're finding is actually there's a lot of large foundations or nonprofits or NGOs that are approaching us sort of looking for advice on how can they actually now sort of become a little more sustainable, generate revenues, not fully, not 100%, and certainly not greedy revenues, but to generate revenues where they can rely a little bit less on grants and to be more self-sustainable, and at the same time come up with a bit of a business model that supports that. And I think that's a huge area of interest, specifically for seed investors. And and we find that here in Asia. And believe me, I'm going to expand your footprint out here to Asia. <laughs> oh, you're the best, David. I, I can't wait to go to a conference with you or something. I just give you a hug in person. You're just such a such a kind man. I really appreciate it. No, but you're doing such interesting work. And Thank you know, you. In, in Silicon Valley, where there there is a need and probably a will to shift that VC model into something more sustainable. But you and got, more empathetic, empathetic, hopefully as well. Empathetic, but it but it, it has been so successful in the past and so entrenched in the past that you know sometimes it needs a bit of a shift. Where in Asia they never had that history really. It's a lot of first or second generation wealth that's being created out here, um, and so they're a little easier to sort of experiment and try some new structures and this and that. But I think it'd be great if we sort of you know. Do, do the mind meld or whatever, but uh, to, to yes. expand, expand the footprint out here, because I think you're doing some fantastic stuff out there that would really resonate um, out here. And then, and, and then obviously having that experience of Silicon Valley is just, it's such a deep uh, experience, just simply living there and experiencing it and meeting the people on a day-to-day basis. So, but l- l- what are you gonna do in the future? What's, uh, what's in your plan for the next couple of years? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna maintain the focus on venture scale positive impacts. That's a that's pretty much the solo focus going forward, and um, that may look like uh, you know my future as an emerging fund manager. Um, I, I definitely plan on being an active angel investor as well. I just want to support uh, good people and great founders and um, re- you know remarkable teams. I, I just I just want to be a support wherever I can. And and tell us where we can find your podcasts because they're worth listening to. Yes. Me. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, there, it's on all the platforms and um, anyone can reach out on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. And again, I'm always open to collaborate. And that goes for you too, David. I, 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 I consider you a friend and a colleague. So thank you so much. 
<laughs> I'll take I'll take that compliment. That's for sure. Then I will close off uh, quickly here, saying thank you for all the listeners, and um, come back again. I mean, it, first of all, go out and see Zeka, see his uh, podcast, listen to his podcast. It's 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 quite an interesting, and they've been running for a couple of years almost, and it's really quite interesting out there. So I want to say thank you to everyone, and certainly Zeka, thank you very much for uh, dropping in and um, letting us know what's up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX.